welcome to The Divorce Social with me, Samantha Baines, changing the conversation around divorce. This show is sponsored by Penguin in the Room. Penguin in the Room is an award-winning arts, marketing and social media management company. If you want to jazz up your socials and have someone Instagram and tweet for you, then here's your answer. Go to www.penguinintheroom.com. As always, hit subscribe to make sure you're updated about new episodes. And we love to hear from you on social media at DivorcePod and at Samantha Baines. You can also email us all the infos on our website, thedivorcesocial.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I am joined by Laura Cathcart Robbins, podcast host and writer. Hello, welcome to the Divorce Club. Hi, thank you so much for having me. You're so welcome. I've just told you how beautiful you look. I feel like I should start the podcast by also saying, wow, we're on a Zoom scenario and I feel incredibly underdressed and like I should have done my own. (laughs) You look gorgeous. What are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. I felt like I was fishing for a compliment there. No, no. The lipstick too? Um, Gorgeous. Yeah. I love a red lip. Yeah, always. If I if I feel bad, I just put on like a, a bright lip and it makes all me the feel difference. Better. Yeah. So you are a member of the divorce club already. You're divorced. How does it feel when I say to you, you are divorced? You know, it, it's really interesting. Um, I, I don't think I really like that word. And for me, there, there's a negative comment, uh, uh, commentation, connotation with, with that word. It feels like a failure. Like, you know, you married, like it's, you joined and you did it in front of people. If you had a ceremony and there's so much hope and purpose and, and faith involved in a marriage and divorce feels like it all just hit the floor and shattered. And, you know, there's you just too many fragments to pick up. I don't I don't always think of myself as a divorced person when I'm when I'm asked to identify. That's not one of the things I identify with, Um, but it is part of my identity. And it was really difficult for me to get used to the idea that not only had my marriage failed and I'm putting that in quotes that other people can't see um, that I had failed. And that, um, you know, I was no longer going to be the person who I had signed up to be. So when, to go back to your question, when you say that um, I have mixed feelings, part of it is, yes, I've, I had the courage to do that and move through and then move on with my life to the life that I needed to live. 
And then the other part is that negative connotation that is put on that word that I don't like. I think that's so true. And it's even in the words, isn't it? Like married just goes up at the end. It's more obvious with your accent, but it sounds celebratory and divorced is so monotone as a word. It's like divorced. It's so interesting, isn't it, about that link with the word divorce and failure. And you said failure earlier in quotation marks. So do you see your divorce as a failure personally? I, I certainly did. Um, when, when I was contemplating divorce, um, throughout my divorce, I held, you know, my, my, I hung my head. I had absolutely failed and it didn't matter what anybody else said to me because in my mind, everybody was just saying things to make me feel better, but I felt like they were judging me the way I was judging myself. And, you know, those words like courageous and brave and um, didn't pierce through my armor yet. I didn't really get that I could claim those words for myself or for the action that I was taking. I really felt like I had failed my children. I, I really wanted to keep their home intact. My kids were um, eight and nine, and I didn't want them to be those kids who packed a bag on Fridays to go to school because the other parent was picking them up um, and would spend the weekend with them. And the kids who have like two Thanksgivings and two, you know, Christmas or Hanukkahs or whatever, I I wanted them to have one, one family, (laughs) one celebration, you know, one place to go on the weekends. And I felt like I had failed to provide that for them. Um, I view it much differently now, but again, this is 13 years later. Yeah, I think it it's so funny that stigma we put on ourselves. I know when I got divorced, outwardly, I was in a sort of euphoric stage to begin with of just like, I'm free, yeah. But outwardly, and outwardly kind of selling that side of things. But inwardly, I definitely had the failure kind of eating away at me. Yeah, yeah. But let's go back. So it was 13 years ago mm-hmm. that you got divorced. Where were you in your life at that time? You've you've said that your children were eight and nine, nine. was it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So where were you elsewhere in that? Let Help me picture the scene. Yeah. Well, funny you should ask because I got divorced and sober at the exact same time. So I'm also 13 years sober. Congrats. And I'm 13 years divorced. Thank you. But I was not. Congrats. Yeah, I was not. Thank you. <laughs> um, I was I was probably in the worst place I've ever been in my life. I. Um, so just a little bit of what it was like. I was taking a, a basically a lethal dose of pills and alcohol every night in order to get to sleep. And I would have to kind of chip away at the pills during the day in order to get through the day. And I was the parent association president and I was on the board of trustees and I was taking tennis three times a week. And I had a weekly manicurist and a weekly, you know, hair appointment. And I was throwing dinner parties. And so I had this, the, the ultimate double life where I had this, all these events to show up for looking gorgeous and put together during the day. And at night I would, you know, basically knock myself into oblivion. 
And the doses I had to take in order to do that were growing exponentially because my tolerance was going up. And um, so when I filed for divorce, I knew that I was running out of time with what I now know to be an addiction. I didn't really understand that then. I thought I just, this is what I need to do to show up. I can't show up for all these things if I don't have a drink or if I don't have a pill. I just, I didn't think I could. So I figured that was a good trade. (laughs) I would just get wasted. (laughs) And then I'd be able to show up and do everything that made everybody else happy. Um, And then I would kind of, I thought of it as treating myself at night to these lethal doses of of pills and alcohol. Um, But what was happening was that I was starting to depend more on it during the day more on the pills and the alcohol during the day. So that was a boundary I had drawn in order to show up. I couldn't imbibe during the day and I was starting to. So I knew I needed to check myself into treatment before it got bad. And I didn't know how I was going to do that and let not let anyone know I had a problem. Um, Least of all, my, my husband who was still living in the house with me. Um who obviously knew there was something going on, but because he, he was, he's a, he was a director um, producer, then he traveled a lot. So I was able to do a lot of it under the radar and after everyone was asleep, including him. Um, so yeah, I, I had to tell him I want a divorce and I'm going to get sober. And, um, and I've, I filed I, I filed with somebody it's set in motion and I, you know, I need to go to treatment and for 30 days and deal with this. And yeah, you can just kind of imagine what his reaction to that must've been. (laughs) He wasn't very happy. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's hard to break the fact that you want a divorce to someone anyway, without right you know, the extra added, I have an addiction and I need to go for treatment. Yeah. Um, so you were, wow, you were coping with so much at that time, you know, being yes. being outwardly the perfect mom and, you know, head of the pres- um, the parents association and doing tennis. And then also at nighttime, just living this, trying to get yourself through. And, and when you say pills and alcohol, what was it painkillers or sleeping pills? Are you comfortable in saying what it was? Oh yeah. It's people often wonder at my drug of choice, which was Ambien, which is a sleeping pill. Um, for, for most people, um, even, even some addicts, Ambien can be a really safe method of resetting oneself to get your sleep cycle back on. For me, it got me high it had an effect on me that it doesn't have on most people. And so I would try to, <laughs> to prolong that time between the time that I took it and the time that I fell asleep because I really enjoyed that feeling and that the alcohol was helpful with that. It would just kind of send me into another stratosphere. And then eventually I would fall asleep, which is why I didn't really do it during the day because I couldn't take, take it and then go out and drive. Or take it and go pick. I couldn't go give a speech. You know, I I I would fall asleep eventually. <laughs> so it was it was something. It was a very solo activity. I would take Ambien more and more. You know, as my tolerance level increased. There's something that happens when you abuse a sedative, and it's called rebound insomnia, where your 
your, your brain, which is an amazing thing. It overcompensates. Like, so I'm putting myself to sleep so often my brain's like, this isn't, this isn't right. So it sends out adrenaline to keep me awake. So what would happen? I would be in a constant state of this adrenaline kind of jitteriness unless I took Ambien. So it was, it was terrible. I was literally just getting through event to event to event until I could get to that dose at night. So do you think the, the addiction came before the fact that you wanted a divorce or the other way around, or were they very intertwined? Yeah, that's a really good question. I've been writing about this. I, I think that what happened was when I entered into my marriage, when I, I was already living that double life, not with drugs and alcohol, though. Those came in later for me. But I was someone who hadn't graduated from high school, who didn't go to college, who grew up in an emotionally abusive household that was also a violent household. Um, and I had left that that town, which was Berkeley, California, it's Northern California, and moved to where I am now, which is Los Angeles, and just restarted my life. So I lied and said that I had a college degree. I didn't mention high school because no one my age talked about high school. It was just about college. And I got hired places and learned, you know, I had a very um, informal education. I didn't have a formal education, so I improvised. And I was a quick study and I learned how people did things. And I found something that I was really good at, which was publicity. And I, I, I found a woman to teach it to me. And she, you know, I, I started doing better and better in her firm and finally bringing in my own clients. And then I started my own company, which was really successful. And that's when I met my husband. So he didn't know anything about my past. I never told him. So I entered into that marriage as this woman with a college degree in a successful company, never letting him know that I was someone who was scared all the time of getting caught. You know, as someone saying, hey, what college was that that you went to again? <laughs> because I called or I emailed and they don't have any record of you. I was always terrified of that or terrified of someone from those high school years coming back into our lives and revealing that I hadn't graduated. And so I started that double life then, and I think that the pills helped me cope with it. So the, the, the arrangement I entered into my marriage didn't really have a chance. You know, I, I wasn't going to, I would, it was unsustainable the way that I was going. And so after my kids were born, I was way out of, I mean, I was so out of my depth. I had never even changed a diaper. I didn't know anything about kids. And they were born back to back. They were eight and nine when we got divorced, boys. And so I, I really tried to be like now this successful woman and this successful mom. And I needed more pills and alcohol in order to make that happen eventually. Um, I actually found pills when my kids were about four and five. And that's like, oh, oh, good. <laughs> I have some help. I can do this now. And, they, and I took them as prescribed for about a year and a half. And they really worked. But then, then, you know, I didn't know I was an addict. I didn't know that was coming. I didn't know that was possible. So I think when I filed, I was setting myself free from that, that bond that I, I created by living a lie. And that way, 
setting myself free from the marriage would mean that I didn't have to live the lie anymore. Wow. So there's, there's a lot there. And I think, yes, it's, sorry. <laughs> no, um, thank you for sharing your story. I think the, the lie, cause you, you didn't say the word lie originally. And I wondered if you thought of it as a lie at the time, did you feel in day-to-day life that you were constantly lying to your husband or did you feel? No, I didn't. I, I wasn't in touch with that. I don't think I could have been and, and perpetuated it. I think if I were aware of it on a daily basis, I would have, I would have either crumbled or um, had to leave or something in order for me to do what I did. I think I had to be really disconnected from the fact of how dishonest I was being. You say that you were trying to be the perfect wife and you felt that you had to, and, and the perfect sort of businesswoman, and you felt that you had to lie to get there. And then you were trying to be the perfect mum. And then obviously you had to deceive with these pills or you needed help to get there. So in both yeah. instances, you sort of didn't believe that you, you know, natural core you was able to do those things. Where do you yeah. think that idea came from? Do you think it was your upbringing? I'm not sure. So the the abuse in my household, the emotional abuse that I that I suffered came at the hands of my stepfather. My parents, who I told you got divorced when I was um, when I was young, I mean they are great. Even though my mom stayed married to somebody that was violent toward her, she was in a cycle that she couldn't get herself out of out of. But with me. I was always told how intelligent I was. Like my mom for bedtime stories when I was three and four was reading Dostoevsky to me in Gogol. She didn't read children's books to me. I didn't even hear one until I was like five or six when I went five, I guess, when I went to school. I only knew these, you know, these really like Russian literature. <laughs> wow. I don't, um, I've not even read them now. I'm an yeah. And I love them. You know, and they they really both of them. My dad's an HIV doctor. He's still practicing. Um, my mom is an artist and they both just not just told me that I was beautiful, even though that was one of the things they said to me. But first was always intelligent, the substance of my character, how kind I was, how considerate I was, how thoughtful that was, um, how what a joy I was to be around. And so I was fed those messages all the way growing up. I think what happened was um, once I was not able to complete 10th grade, as far as I was concerned, it, it got too hard and I didn't want to ask anyone for help. Um, I saw myself differently and it had then those messages they had given me fell short of, of me, of getting me to the point where I could have the humility to ask for help. And I saw, and this is, I think, the damage I sustained from my stepfather, asking him for help um, always got me uh, belittled and judged. Um, You know, I was called a failure. I was asked, what's wrong with you? You know, why can't you do that? So I never wanted to show anybody that I needed help with anything. And so I didn't. And um, that was like my, my, my code of ethics. It was my coat of armor was not asking for help. And I think, um, you know, for me, it wasn't an overall thing. Like in order to get that great job with that woman who taught me how to be a publicist, 
I, I only college applicants could apply. So I just lied and said I was a college applicant. I didn't think of it as like some defect of character. I just thought I'll just put this down and see if it happens. And then she called me and I was like, oh, wow, that worked. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and and then she interviewed me and then I had the job because as far as she knew, I was the best qualified person for it. And, you know, so I figured I'll just make it up, you know, I'll learn more. I'll work harder. I'll hustle. I have a great hustle ethic. Like, I, you know, you'll tell me something and I'll go study it and come back an expert. I, I can do that. So that's what I figured I would do. And then I figured I was as good as anybody she would have hired minus the college degree. But so what if I can do the work? That was my thinking, my rationale. But I didn't think of it as a lie. It's funny because it reminds me because my training is as an actor. I still work as an mm. actor. And it reminds me of actors who just put random skills on their CV that they can't do. Yeah. And then you right. get offered a job and you're like, well, I'll go learn it. Fine. Yeah. I'll go learn archery. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> sure. I'm sure I can <laughs> shoot an arrow. It's fine. Yeah. So you, you say you found the pills mm-hmm. when your boys were four and five. And it wasn't yeah. until they were eight and nine that you ask for the divorce and check yourself into a a clinic what was that realization moment that you had an addiction do you remember was there one thing that made you realize I don't think there was one thing I think there were just several events um you know waking up scared more often than I was waking up unafraid um waking up terrified more often, not knowing how I was going to get through the day. You know, I ran out a lot, even with three doctors prescribing to me, I needed to take a lot of pills at night to keep myself asleep. So I didn't, I never had like a lot of pills. So I was, I was in withdrawal a lot and my periods of withdrawal became more intense um, and more unbearable. And so each time that happened, I think a little bit of my willingness to continue on chipped away. And, you know, the, the, the day that I decided to go to treatment wasn't much different than any other days. Uh, I had, it was 4th of July and I needed to go to sleep earlier that night because I had to shut my mind off and stop the withdrawals. So I sent my kids with the neighbors to watch the fireworks. And And then I sat in the house by myself and I was like, what the fuck? Like, you can't even get it together to take your kids to the fireworks. You have to feign an illness or a headache is what I feigned. Um, Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. 
Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And I couldn't, I couldn't get well enough, you know? And I was just like, I, I wasn't thinking I was going to get sober forever, but I was just like, I got to get out of this, whatever this cycle is, I've got to get out of it. Cause I can't stop on my own. I tried. It's too painful. And it was literally painful in my body, but also the, the obsession was so great. So I would, um, start looking, you know, online and looked at different places. No, not that place. Oh, this place has a private room that I can stay in this place as a five-star chef <laughs> started, you know, just kind of perusing. And I would do that every once in a while. And then that day I picked a place. And uh, so July 5th, that year, that was a Saturday. Actually, I called them on that Saturday and left a message because no one was answering on. And that Monday they called me back and I asked them to make an appointment for me to check in. So I didn't realize that it was that straightforward to check yourself in. I think there's a slightly different system in America to the UK because obviously we have mm. the NHS as well. But so you literally just found somewhere nice on the internet and then called them and said, can I have an appointment? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's 40 grand. So it's not everybody, it's not it's everybody has access that way. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> But, you know, if for people who don't have the means, there are other ways, but they're they're in the system then. And it does take longer um, going outside of the system like I was because I had the access and the means to go. Um, I could just call. You can call anywhere and check in. When did you tell your husband or say that you're filing for divorce? Was it the day you went for the prior. appointment? No, no, it was prior to that. Yeah, um, it, it was actually a couple months prior to that. And I, my plan was get divorced and then get sober and then be a mom. That was my plan. I figured if I got sober while I got divorced, he would use it against me during the divorce. That would be dumb. So I got to wait, but then I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait anymore because it was like, it, like I told you, it was unbearable. And so I told him I he was, he was lovely too. He, he actually um, chartered a jet and flew me to where I decided to go. And he brought the kids there to visit me halfway through um, and back. And he took care of them, you know, full time, put his projects aside the whole time I was gone. Wow. He was great. That's what you yeah. want when you're divorcing yeah. someone. Yeah. So, so I can't imagine though what it was like to be getting divorced and in kind of a rehab facility and trying to get sober because for me getting divorced was hard enough on its own yeah so yeah. how was do you remember that time is it a blur no it's not a blur I remember it it's it's impressed <laughs> in my in my head I remember all of it I um you know, I always, I, when I talk, when I share my story about this, I say, don't try this at home, folks. 
don't get divorced and sober at the same time if you can help it. It is really, really hard um, because you're right. Being divorced, getting divorced is enough to kind of confront and inventory and deal with on its own. And it's painful and it's painful for the people around you, not just the two people that are involved. So, you know, it was, it's so, there's so many things to process with the divorce and then divorces can get really nasty as well. And people say things, well, I'll just speak for us. We both said things that we regret it later. Um, we both uh, said things in anger. The only thing we didn't do, and I got to, I'm patting myself on the back for all of those who are listening, um, is we didn't do it in front of our children. And to, to our children, we, we spoke lovingly of the other, even when things were at the very scraping the bottom of the barrel of, of what we, like we couldn't even be in the same room. We still spoke lovingly of each other. You know, we, we didn't ever talk badly. I never talked badly about their father to them, but it's really hard. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely one of the hardest things I've ever done. The other hardest thing was getting sober and leaving my kids for a month, which I'd never done before. I'd never been away from them that long. That was excruciating. That was excruciating. And thinking I'm leaving and I'm giving him a leg up. I'm leaving and the house is going to be cleaned out and they're going to be moved out or I'm going to be locked out when I get back or he'll have already completed the process and I'll get a small penance and I won't be a custodial parent. Like I had no idea. I lost all my rights when I went. He could have done anything while I was gone. And so I spent each of those 30 days in so much pain, worried about what I was going to be returning home to. And um, it took another four months for us to get divorced, for it to be finalized after I got back from treatment. Um, I didn't come back to change locks or uh, the process had halted while I was away. All parties agreed to do that. And so I was really fortunate, Um, but it was still, it was still so hard. Um, And I know that there was no other way to get through it. Like I couldn't have made it easier because it's just, it's, it's grief. Like it's something died and there is a grieving and a mourning period. And, you know, the stages of grief are, what are they? They're denial, anger, um, bargaining, um, is depression one of them? Yeah, there's acceptance. <laughs> acceptance is the end. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think but, acceptance comes before the end because then you're like, oh, oh, does okay, it? Okay, this is real. This is real, right? Let me Google. That. And bargaining's kind of in the middle, I think. Um, I did a lot of that. Okay. Well, who were you bargaining yeah. with? Um, myself and and him, but a lot of myself. Like, if I can get through this, then I'll then I'll be okay. Or if, if I can get him to say this, if I can get him to agree to, you know, maybe we won't um, have the kids leave the house. Maybe we'll, we'll move and the kids will stay here and then we'll switch so that the kids don't have to be those kids who switch houses all the time. And uh, maybe, you know, if, if I, if I'm really good, like if I can stay sober and I'm really good, he, he'll let me have the kids most of the time. Like all I really cared about was custody I mean, certainly there was, there was money at stake. So I, I, I cared about being comfortable, but I wasn't, I wasn't after that the way I was after my kids. Like I just, 
I really didn't want to be away from my kids. So um, I bargained, you know, in my head with my attorney and then eventually with him. Yes. Did you find them? I've looked it up. The five stages of grief are denial, anger, bargaining, depression and acceptance. And acceptance. Cool. I feel like I had depression after acceptance because I feel like I was like, oh, this is happening. Now I'm really sad about it because it's real. Right. Yeah. But so, yeah, I definitely went through each of those probably in that order. But depression might have come earlier on for me, actually, um, because of the addiction. Yeah. It's hard to tell what was what then. Um, But, you know, the lows with addiction feel like depression. So, yeah, I, you know, just uh, I'll just say this. Grieving was part of it and grieving the loss of my best friend, which had been my Ambien was another part of that for me. So I was grieving two things at once. So you come out of your 30 days kind of away from everything. You've been worrying the whole time. You come back and, you know, things aren't worst case scenario. The locks aren't changed. The process isn't sorted. But presumably you'd been in a structure in where you were to help you get sober. So how did you cope coming back into you know, the real world and your life. It's a nightmare. Yeah. It was. Yeah. Did you have to input a structure for yourself as well as going through all the divorce stuff? I, yeah, I guess I did. I mean, I don't know if I had to, but you know, I got home and I, I just didn't, I miss my kids so much. You know, I couldn't wait to smell the watermelon shampoo that they used on their hair. Like I would bury my nose in their curly heads and, just hug them and be with them and watch stupid SpongeBob and Ninja Turtles and like Avatar, the last airbender. I just wanted to like binge those shows with them and hug them and be with them. But when I got home, like I was so awkward. I didn't know how to do anything. I felt like I didn't know how to be their mom anymore. I didn't know. I didn't know how to talk to them. Like we would have awkward pauses in our conversation, which seems so silly because they're kids. But I was, I was so like stunted from my time away. I, I was not, and then talking to adults was worse. I avoided everybody. And so what happened was I had, you know, I dropped them off at school and then I would have hours to kill until I picked them up. And so I ended up going to recovery meetings because they were close by and people had told me to go and I didn't know what else to do. And I figured no one knows me there. So I can just kind of stay in the back and I won't have to say anything because I didn't want to talk to my friends. I didn't want to talk to my family. I was so embarrassed and ashamed. And so I went to recovery meetings. I ended up going to like, there was a nine o'clock, a 1030 and a 12. So I did all of those. And I started to remember how to talk to people and how to do things. And, you know, getting to sleep was like that took a year and change for me. I couldn't sleep, but just learning how to be an acceptance of the fact that I wasn't going to sleep like I did before took a long time too. Um, and I, I just got a report from the other side that I sleep so well now. It actually, after that year and a half, I slept amazing. Like I never slept before. And 13 years later, I'm still sleeping like that, but it was really scary. And um, you know, and I still had divorce in front of me. I still had 
you know, meetings with my attorneys and scary stuff being thrown at me. And, you know, and I had to contend with the fact that I had put myself at a disadvantage because I, I have an addiction, I'm an addict and I checked myself into treatment. Um, so all that was really scary and I just kind of got through it. There's so much that you were going through at that time. Cause we talk a lot on the podcast about, you know, when you move into a new space and it's just you now and not you as a couple and, and all of that, like getting used to being on your own and, um, you know, sleeping on one side of the bed. And, but on top of that, you had, you know, getting used to a different you. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, I can't imagine. So during that time when you were going through all of that, did you have to break the news to the people that you knew? Because I remember, and I've we've spoken about it on the pod before, you know, sometimes breaking the divorce news to other people is worse than actually, you know, having the conversation with your partner about getting divorced because of other people's reactions. Whereas you must have had a double whammy. How did you deal with that? Or did or was everyone told? Not the, my friends were told about both, you know, and when I say friends, I don't mean people that I'm friendly with, but my, my core group, like probably five or six women, they were told, uh, not the people at school, not the people, not the, like the administration at school and the faculty, but also not the parents that I knew from there. And there were a lot of people I was friendly with. And like I told you, I was kind of front and center in that community So none of those people were told. Um, Yeah, I mean, telling, we didn't tell anybody, neither he or I at school for a long time. Um, I I, I remember having a parent-teacher conference and then, um, and we, so the way we did it was we decided that we didn't want anything to change for our kids. That's how we ended up doing the divorce. Um, It's one of the things that I was trying to bargain for, but didn't think I was going to get, but it turned out that he wanted it too. So he would, we had a second home at the time. He moved into that second home and he would come over every morning for breakfast. So before the kids woke up, he was there and we would all have breakfast together. And then, you know, one of us would take the kids to school, usually me, because he would be on his way to work. And then he would come over when he wasn't shooting for dinner and then do bedtime. And so that's how we did it. I, And then on the weekends, he would take the kids to his house, which was a a beach house in Malibu. And so we, we worked it out. So we were, our kids' lives didn't change so much. So we still showed up at every parent teacher conference, every holiday performance, like everything we did together. Uh, When there was an end of the year dinner for the board of trustees, he was my date. Like we, we went there together. Um, And, but we weren't together. But what what I was going to say is we came out of this parent teacher conference and, um, you know, they have like the parents lined up outside the classroom waiting to go in and meet with the teacher. We were talking to another couple that we're really friendly with. And somehow it came up that we were divorced and she dropped her coffee. She was like, and the coffee went splat on the ground. It was a, you know, styrofoam mug. It wasn't (laughs) ceramic. Right. Smash. Um, And, you know, covered her mouth with her hand like we had just told her that, you know, the other had died or something. And they were both so curious as to why we had keeping it hidden. I'm making air quotes again for people who are just listening. 
Um, so when people did find out, they felt sucker punched by it and um, felt like, you know, we had done something like underhand. Yeah. But like um, lying. Yeah. Covertly. Right. That we were covertly divorced and not not telling them. And honestly, he and I also didn't think it was a lot of people's business whether or not we were married or divorced. Covertly divorced yeah. is a hilarious sentence. That makes me think of you like, you know, in balaclava, like running yes. around, <laughs> hiding in bushes. So it's so interesting that, you know, no one knew sort of really in the out- outside of your inner circle that you'd been away for a month um, and got sober. And then people didn't really catch on that you were divorced for so long. But now, 13 years later, you're so open and honest about your story. So how did you get to this place now? Well, I'll tell you, thank you for asking me that. Um, What happened was when word did start to spread that we were divorced, people that I knew that I was friendly with who were getting their own divorces came to me to see how we did it. So I started sharing my story with people. And then eventually I started writing about it. And then, you know, some of that writing caught on and then I get called to speak at conferences about it. And it's, you know, it wasn't something that we did. Definitely not looking for this result where we were doing something to be admired. We were really just trying to do what was best for our kids. We didn't know, you know, if this was the best way to do it for our kids. And it's not the best way for all families because all families, some people can't stand to be in the same room with one another. And that tension is worse, you know, but we were in a position where we, there was still enough love by the time we got divorced that we could retain enough of that to care about each other enough. And that is what our kids saw. Cause I, I definitely, he was my, in case of emergency for years after our divorce. And, you know, we just, we just like, I go, he's remarried now. He has a daughter. Um, I've been with my boyfriend for 13 years. So just right since we got divorced, almost 13 years, not quite 13 years. And so we're each moved on to different relationships, but he invites me to his house or they invite me to their house. Every Thanksgiving have for the last 12 years, um, I've gone there for Thanksgiving because it's Thanksgiving can be my son's birthday. He's born on the 24th of November. Um, I know you guys don't really have Thanksgiving there, but <laughs> it's, you know, it's like one of those days where family gather, families gather and my son didn't want to celebrate his birthday without both of us there. So that was that first Thanksgiving. So we decided to do it together. And then every year we've done it together since then. And it's not like he and I are best buds and we call each other all the time and share a bunch of stuff. We're just, we're just cool with each other like that. And so people, people were, you know, encouraged, I think, to see that that too was possible. And so telling my story, I get a lot of feedback um, from people who either want what I have or want what we have or do have it. And, and, oh, thank God, someone else has this really, you know, amicable divorce um, where it didn't all go to shit afterward. So, yet. Yeah, so it's so nice to hear. I think so many people will be listening like, oh my God, I hope that happens for me. How can I make that happen? So do you have any like advice for those people who are like, I want what you have, what what do I need to do? Well, you know, 
we saw a divorce counselor. Um, I don't know Together. how. Yeah. Before we got okay. divorced. Not before I filed, but before it was official. Um, we saw this woman here in Los Angeles where I live. And we, we, had a, we had a few sessions with her. And she took us through like, okay, the first step is like, you know, who's going to have access to the house? Who's going to have keys? Like, look at all that. If Laura lives there primarily, you know, you can't just be walking in whenever you want to. So you need to have boundaries around that. Um, I think, you know, so that was really helpful seeing her. Also, that both of us care so much about our children was really helpful. We cared more about our children than we did hurting each other. And if we hadn't, I have no idea what would have happened. Um, but because we did, no matter how hurt um, the other one of the other was, we were able to put that aside in favor of making it okay for our kids, you know, whatever might be best for them. So that was really helpful as we were going through if people who are doing this can see their way clear to be less vindictive and more, or, you know, or just acting out of being hurt, which is, you know, I was hurt so often during the process, but I, I really did my best to never let it interfere with how we were protecting our children during this time. Uh, and there were times, man, where I would have wanted to just like, and your dad, you don't even know what I'm going through, blah, blah, blah. If you had any idea, but I zip and say any of that, just like your dad's on the phone. He wants to talk to you. Well, I don't, I don't have children. So I was able to be as vindictive as I was. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. um, but it wasn't too bad in the end. It wasn't too bad. Obviously, there's times when you're like, I had a uh, well when I'd had a few glasses of prosecco and yes. I was like, I'm gonna <laughs> ring him up. Um, <laughs> so, is there a moment now when you look back on the last thirteen years that you've been sober and since your divorce, is there a moment that you remember where you thought, "Oh, I'm gonna be okay. I'm in a good place. Everything's better. I'm happy." Yeah, you know, I actually I wrote about this. Um, for HuffPo. And, um, you know, they, there, so uh, he married a, a friend of ours, um, a woman who had been our friend. And I didn't like that too much. <laughs> it's a little salty about that. Um, and then when, but they were married for a little while and I was kind of getting used to that. And then he told me that she was pregnant. And I kind of lost it a little bit and um, not to him, but in my mind, I was, I was, I was pissed um, that they were going to have a baby. And, you know, I had kind of enjoyed the, the only wife status at that point or for a while until he got married. And then I enjoyed being the only mother of his children too. Like that, something I didn't even know I liked, but now that was being taken away from me. And I, so I was, I, I was against um, <laughs> this, this child being born <laughs> for whatever, you know, to myself, I was against it. And, you know, I, I actually, I wrote about this too. I secretly hoped that she, it, the baby, like she wouldn't be able to get pregnant because I didn't, cause I knew that, that they were, they were trying and I didn't want her to get pregnant. Um, so she did. And, you know, then she, 
ha- has, um, um, oh, they go away, they go away and to Hawaii and she's, she's pretty pregnant at this point. And there's something that goes on and they have to go to the hospital. My kids are with them. And so I'm talking to my son and he's like, oh yeah, they went to the hospital. Something's wrong with the baby. And I'm like, what? So I called him and I'm like, what's going on? And he tells me, and I'm like, oh man, don't you remember that same thing happened to me with our first son? And it was fine. It was just this, this, and this. And I can hear the tears on his side. And he tells her, I can hear her too. And he's like, it's okay. This happened to Laura and blah, 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 blah. And at that moment, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm free of this. I really want them to have this. I was rooting. I was so scared that they were going to lose that baby. And that, and I didn't even know I wanted it until that moment. And at that moment, I was like, oh, and I'm free of this. I'm free of this, 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 this bind, this, that was keeping me toward this old idea that I had this place in his life. You know, I always have a place. I'm the mother of his sons, but I, I didn't want to be usurped. And at that moment, I realized that it was perfectly fine. And, and, and I was even rooting for it. I love that. That's so nice. Yeah. And that's how I discovered you as well from that Huffington Post. Ah, ah, there you go. So we come full circle. Yes. Um, thank you so much for sharing your story with the Divorce Club. Um, where can people find out more about you and listen to your podcast and follow you? Oh, thank you. Yes. My podcast, which I failed to mention this whole time, um, is called The Only One in the Room. And, and I do tell, I, my guests tell stories of being divorced and feeling like the only divorced person or the only black person, which was my original story. Um, whatever the only one is, whatever you feel othered for, um, people come on and tell those stories on my podcast. My website is the only one pod.com. Um, that's the easiest way to find everything on Instagram. I'm at Laura Cathcart Robbins. That's L-A-U-R-A-C-A-T-H. C-A-R-T-R-O-B-B-I-N-S. Facebook is the same. Twitter, I'm Laura C. Robbins. I'm never on Twitter though. Um, and and I think that's it. Those are all the places to reach me. Perfect. Well, we'll tag you everywhere as well. Okay, but great. Thank you so much. Thanks, Samantha. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Oh, hi. Thank you for listening to The Divorce Social with me, Samantha Baines. Please leave us a review. Please, please. Um, It would be super nice. They're lovely to read. They keep me cheery and happy and keep me going. Uh, But also it affects our listing in the podcast charts, uh, which are very important because that's how more people find the podcast. And I'd love to help more people get through those really tough heartbreak and divorce times. And they're more likely to find us if we're higher up on the charts. So if you'd like to leave a review, I'd love you forever. You can leave them on iTunes is the big one or most podcast platforms do them as well. I'll take all the reviews you've got to give. You can also uh, get in contact on Twitter and Instagram at DivorcePod and at Samantha Baines. We have a website, thedivorcesocial.com and we have a Patreon account, which means that you can support the podcast for as little as £2 a month and it helps me with all the admin costs. It also means you have access to our 90 style divorce and heartbreak chat room and there's lots of exclusives on there, little bits of audio that you don't get in the main podcast and some giveaways as well. So I'd love to see you over on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Samantha Baines and please leave a review. Did I say that already? Please leave a review. Love you forever.